Uh, if you have your Bible with you this morning, would you open up to Matthew chapter 6, please? And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, we're going to deviate for a Sunday from our study in the book of Genesis and do a standalone Sunday in Matthew chapter 6. And if you're using the Pew Bible, you will find our passage on page 859. Uh, thank you for working your schedule, uh, coming early this morning. I hope you like my parade chic outfit. It's very fantastic. Uh, it is vital to us that we gather on the Lord's Day and we worship together. It is also vital that when our town draws a crowd, we want to be in the middle of it. We are, lest you forget, South Shore Baptist Church is the reigning best of parade float champs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, then last year, since they canceled the parade, that means we're two-time reigning champs. That's what I think. So we don't have a float in the parade today, of course, but I'm glad that we'll be able to worship and we'll be able to be with friends and neighbors uh, and celebrate with our town. If you're not from Hingham, you're not in a hurry to get home, hang around, go to the parade. It's a lot of fun. And uh, pro tip, don't buy the snow cones. They're just trash. You're paying five bucks for chunky ice with colored water. They're not good. I know your kids are going to want it. Just don't do it, okay? There's your help for the morning. All right, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13 is where we're going to be this morning. If you want to learn how to paint, you're going to go to an artist. And if you want to learn uh, how to write music, you're going to go to a composer. And if you want to learn how to pray, you're going to go to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 6, we find Jesus in the middle of this large teaching block. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we're going to look at one teaching point of Jesus on the topic of prayer this morning. Jesus is teaching his disciples and others who are listening in how to pray. The crowd that he's addressing is largely a religious crowd. They're predominantly Jewish people. Uh, and so you'll notice what Jesus doesn't say in our teaching. He does not uh, urge them to pray. He doesn't tell them they should pray. He takes as given that they are already people who are familiar with prayer so his concern is not telling them to pray, but rather telling them how to pray. This teaching is here because the people who are hearing Jesus' voice don't pray as they ought to pray. And I wonder if that's where we might find ourselves this morning. No one understood prayer or practiced prayer the way Jesus did. When Jesus prayed, it was as if prayer was where the work was completed and done. Oftentimes, you and I, when we think of prayer, we think of it as uh, some, a, a place for us to be prepared for the work. And that's not necessarily wrong. But if you look at the places where Jesus prays in the Gospels, he labored in prayer, and the work was finished there in prayer, and then he went on about his business. For example, where in Jesus' life did he sweat great drops of blood? It wasn't when he was standing before Pilate. And it wasn't when he was carrying his cross to Calvary. It was when he was in prayer in the garden. That's when the stress, the strain, the labor was so intense that he sweats blood. If you and I had walked in on that scene, we might have seen the situation a little different. We would have seen Jesus having a fit, 
so to speak, in prayer. We might have been put off by what we saw there. And by contrast, here are his disciples with a peace that passes all understanding, asleep in the sovereignty of God, resting in what God has ordained and how he will take care of things. And so we might look at the scene and say, look at how wonderful the faith of these disciples is, that they trust God this explicitly, they can sleep even on a night like this. But then look at Jesus who is so upset, sweating great drops of blood as he prays. He's just praying and he's this upset. What's he gonna be like whenever he faces a real crisis? But you'll remember how the story goes that Jesus finished praying and he stood up and he walked to the cross. And the disciples woke up and they ran away from the cross. Prayer is where Jesus labored. Prayer is where Jesus did the work, not just prepared, but where he did the work, where he dwelt with the Father and engaged in spiritual warfare and sought all the strength that he needed for the task ahead, ahead of him. So Jesus wants his followers to pray as he prayed. And he gives us an outline to follow here in Matthew chapter 6. It's called the Lord's Prayer. That's what we've all been taught our whole life. This is the Lord's Prayer. I'm not sure that's a great name for it because this isn't a prayer that Jesus would have prayed at least not in its entirety. The reason I say that is because there's one petition in here where it says, forgive us our debts. Well, Jesus didn't have any sins that needed to be forgiven, did he? He's the sinless son of God. So this isn't the prayer Jesus would have prayed, but it's the prayer he gives us to pray. And to be sure, listen, this is not magic words. This is not the collection of words and sentences that gets God's attention more than any other prayer. As if when we pray the Lord's Prayer, that God really perks up. Oh, you're serious. No, we pray this or we, as, a, as a guide, as an outline. It's teaching us how to approach God in prayer. So we've always called it the Lord's Prayer. I think it's better that we might call it the Disciples' Prayer because that's who it's for. This is an outline, a guide, a strategy for praying. And Matthew chapter 6 is perfect for those who don't know how to pray but want to. Maybe the, the bulk of your prayer life has been reciting church-given prayers. And you want to pray with freedom in the Lord? Matthew chapter 6 teaches us to do that. Or for those of you who are followers of Jesus but your prayer life is dull or deceased, this is a time to be refreshed. Matthew 6 does that for us. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Here's how Jesus teaches us to pray. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. How should we pray? Well, when we pray, Jesus teaches us, we begin with God's person. Who, how do we start our praying? We start with God's person. Who is he? What is he like? What is his character? This is where our praying starts. And in verse 9, Jesus begins this outline with this line, our Father in heaven. When you address the omnipotent, omniscient, 
eternally glorious creator God, you get to call him Father. In the Old Testament, God's only addressed as Father maybe seven times. And every one of those times, it's only by the nation of Israel gathered together as one that they will address God as Father. As far as we know, neither Abraham, nor Moses, nor David, nor Daniel ever addressed God as Father in prayer. We don't have that written and recorded in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, God is referred to as Father over 275 times. What a privilege you have on this side of the cross to call God your Father. To call him Father is not some small thing. It's a word we're so familiar with. And when it comes to praying this prayer, we just recite it so nonchalant, our Father in heaven. But to call God Father is, is a title that speaks to us of his character. He's loving. He's compassionate. He's kind. He's attentive. That omnipotent power that sits at the center of all creation is compassionate and kind. He's your Father. To call him Father indicates that he's knowable. He's the God with whom we have a relationship, not a tyrant that we have to grovel in front of. To call him Father is to say something about his nearness. He's close to us. He's not the Father far away like a spectator who's disengaged. To call him Father is to acknowledge that he's close to us, even when our hearts are broken. He's the Father who's close to us. When we pray about God's person, we pray to our Father, we pray to our Father who's in heaven. To say he's in heaven is not to pinpoint his location as if if we don't give our prayer a destination, it might wind up in Albuquerque. To say he's our Father in heaven, what is he doing in heaven? He reigns. He's the center of all worship, of all created beings for all eternity. He sits on his throne in incredible, unimaginable glory. Our Father in heaven, when we say in heaven, we're speaking of his greatness, his power, his sovereign rule over all things. He's the creator worthy of all glory and honor and the God who holds all power and knowledge and truth and glory is your Father. So if we were to dissect your prayer life, what kind of God have you been praying to? Do you pray to a God that you have to persuade and bargain with as if he's a car salesman? Or do you pray to a God who is far away and hard of hearing? Do you pray to a God who's only there in case of emergencies? Or do you pray to your Father in heaven? When you pray, address him as Father. Start with this person. And having started your prayer with this person, the second focus of your praying should be God's program. When I say God's program, I mean his purposes, his work, all that he's doing to complete our redemption and bring about the consummation of his kingdom. And in these verses, there are three petitions that focus on God's program. The first focus, or excuse me, the first petition is found in verse 10. It's concerned with God's honor, your name be honored as holy. That's the translation in the Bible we've read this morning, your name be honored as holy. Uh, you may be more familiar with the King James Version, hallowed be thy name. If you're hardcore King James, then it's hallowed 
you put the emphasis on the ed. Hallowed be thy name. What does it mean to hallow something? It means to make it holy. Set it apart. To honor God's name as holy. So, here's the question in this petition. Your name be honored as holy. Who is the one that is to be making God's name holy? The prayer is directed to God. We're telling God in prayer, God, honor your name as holy. Before we look to anyone else or even in the mirror, we say, God, honor your name as holy. For God to be holy, again, is for him to be entirely other, separate, different from his creation. He is not creature. He is creator alone. And so we're saying, God, you be other than all of us. Be separate than all of us. In other words, we're saying, God, be God. In my praying, I'm going to honor the name of God as holy. God, be God to me. That's the heart of this prayer. Have you prayed like that? Have you prayed, God, honor your name as holy in this world and in my life? God, be God to me. What Christians frequently do is we bemoan the state of affairs in our country or in our world. We've got plenty of good reason to do that. And so when we think about God's name being profaned, we would look elsewhere. We would point fingers at others. We would say, God, make them honor your name as holy. But here's what I think Jesus is teaching us. If God is honoring his name as holy and someone else is going to do it as well, it's going to start with me. I can't pray for others when I'm not praying for myself. God, I want you to be God to me. I want my life to be lived in such a way that you are separate, holy, held apart, revered, honored, and glorified. God, I want my life to reflect my trust and reliance upon you. And so in what areas of your life do you need God to be God? You might pray, God, may your name be honored as holy in my singleness, or in my marriage, or in my finances, or in my life, God, be God to me. The second petition that deals with God's program is in verse 10. Your kingdom come. And this petition is concerned with God's rule. Your kingdom come. When we speak of God's kingdom, we're speaking of his supreme rule over all things. And to speak of God's kingdom coming, we're asking God that his rule would expand over all creation. Again, your kingdom come is such familiar language, but this, it means something. It has definition to it. It's not just some vague church phrase thrown into the atmosphere. Your kingdom come, we're saying, God, gain more real estate for your glory on planet Earth. Your kingdom come, it it has visual effects. We, We can see the kingdom of God taking root in the lives of men and women and boys and girls as they hear the gospel and say yes to Jesus Christ. So your kingdom come is a prayer that the gospel would expand all over this planet to every people group on planet Earth until the very end of all things when Christ sets everything right once and for all. Your kingdom come. So when we pray for Christians and for missionaries, for church planters 
and establish churches, to flourish in the gospel. That's a prayer that God's kingdom would come. At South Shore Baptist Church, we take very serious our financial support of missionaries. And you give generously so that we can support the missionaries that God has put in front of us. And the reason we do that is so that his kingdom would come. In the Middle East, in Europe, in Weymouth, we want the kingdom of God to gain more real estate. And so when I come to God in prayer and I say, your kingdom come, I'm going to think about the world and I'm going to think about those who are doing his work. But if that prayer is going to start with anyone, it's got to start with me. God, on this two square feet of real estate that I live on, your kingdom come. In my home, when I'm alone, in my thoughts, God, your kingdom come. In my conversations with my kids, family, and neighbors, when I'm at the parade today and I see a friend, God, your kingdom come. Come, let the gospel expand in the hearts of men and women everywhere. The third petition, also in verse 10, is this, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer is concerned with God's will. This is a different way for us to pray. So many times we just treat prayer as a way to get our will done. We've got to turn our attention and our trust to the fulfillment of God's will. Sometimes what we'll do is we'll face crisis And then we'll go to God in prayer and we'll prescribe the solution and we'll attach this line, if it be your will. And there's nothing wrong with that line. It it shows a heart of humility. God, here's what I think needs to be done, but I'm going to trust you no matter what. But when's the last time you just set aside your agendas and your prescriptions and you just sat with God in prayer, petitioning him, God, do your will. Let what you want come to pass in my life, in the world around me. Let your will be done in and through me in my relationships and all the facets of my being. When's the last time you just focused your prayer life? God, not my will, but your will be done. Then here in verse 10, we have this very well-known phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. I really think that line points to all three of these petitions, not just the one regarding God's will. Where is God's name honored as holy? In heaven. And where does God reign supreme? That's in heaven. And where is his will done to perfection? That's in heaven. So God, on earth as it is in heaven, may your name be honored as holy. May you reign supreme. May your will be done. So we pray correctly when we focus on the fulfillment of God's program. Jesus tells us to focus on God's person, God's program, and then when we pray, the third place we focus is on God's provision. So with God's program as the primary concern of our praying, the next three petitions focus on our needs and our trust in God to meet those needs. And the first one, the first petition comes in verse 11, give us today our daily bread. That focuses on our physical needs. Here we are asking God to meet our most basic needs physical needs. I've had conversations with friends before who felt that perhaps they shouldn't bother God with little things in prayer. I'll take care of the little things. God's got enough on his plate. I'll take some of the work off of him and he'll, I'll just give him the big things to handle. But what an unbiblical way to think about prayer and to think about God. 
Parents and grandparents are not unconcerned with the little things of the children in their lives. And neither is your heavenly father unconcerned with the little things in your life. It's not as if God says, oh, man, thank you. I really couldn't pull off a loaf of bread for you today. I'm glad you took that into your own hands. God cares about the minutia in our lives. That's the kind of loving heavenly father he is. Yes, he cares about the big things as we define big things. But he also cares about small things as we define small things. We delight in him and he is glorified when we trust him to meet our most basic needs. The word daily is so important here. Notice we're not saying, God, give me barns full of bread. God, give me a 10-year supply of bread. That's not our prayer. We're asking for today's bread. And why is that? Because more than a barn of bread, you need to trust God every day to meet your need. He gives us what we need for this day so that tomorrow we would come back in prayer again to our Heavenly Father and say, God, it's a new day. Your mercies are new. Give me today my daily bread. Meet my needs. When we pray, we've got to seek God's provision for our physical needs. Not only does God care about our physical needs, but the second petition in verse 12 is about our need for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We need forgiveness for our sins. Now, a popular question that would come up here is, all right, if if I don't pray this line, does that mean my sins are not forgiven? Here's what the Bible teaches us, that when we make Jesus Christ the Lord of our life, Our sin is forgiven in total and forever. He doesn't forgive it in part. He doesn't enable you to be forgiven. He forgives you of your sin that separated you from God and your relationship with God is restored to perfection and it stays that way forever. So then why is this petition here? Because for the follower of Jesus, while we are saved from sin, our battle against our personal sin is still ongoing. We no longer carry the curse, but we're aware that we live in a fallen world and without attention to our souls, damage can be done. And so the Bible teaches us to regularly confess our sin and to seek repentance from it. Romans chapter 2 tells us it's the kindness of God that leads us in repentance. And so it's proper that on a regular basis, you and I would sit down and we would do soul work in prayer with God. Does this mean that the only sins I'm forgiven of are the ones that I name? That's not at all what this means. But you know where your weaknesses in your flesh are. The Holy Spirit of God in you brings conviction and presses in on your life to show you where your words, your actions, your attitudes may be out of line with what God has led us to do. And that's where we come in confession and repentance and we ask God for forgiveness. Jesus tells us in this prayer that we're going to ask God to forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So there seems to be a relationship between the forgiveness we receive and the forgiveness we give. Again, does this mean that I only get forgiven by God when I've forgiven others? That's not the system Jesus is setting up, as if we can come to God and say, hey, I forgave three people today. They were driving like maniacs, so you owe me three people's forgiveness worth of sins. 
That's not what Jesus is getting at. But here's what I think he is teaching us, and he does this in multiple places in the New Testament, that one of the sure signs that we belong to the Father is that we are like our Heavenly Father, especially when it comes to dealing with people who have offended us or who have hurt us, who have sinned against us. When we understand and recognize the enormity of our sin against God, then every other grief against us is tiny by comparison. That's not to make small of things you have endured or injustices you may have experienced or be carrying with you. Those are serious, serious matters. But there's hope for the way we handle those things when we see that God has forgiven us rebels and sinners against him, and therefore we can forgive others as well. Earlier we prayed, God be God to me. Here we're praying, God make me like you so I can be like God to those who have offended me. Give me my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me. The final petition in verse 13 regards our spiritual protection. Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We need to be led in the direction of right choices and for God to protect us from the enemy's schemes. The line is, do not bring us into temptation. Does that imply that God could lead us into temptation? There's a variety of theological answers to that. Here's my answer to that. No, God does not tempt his children to sin. He may put us in situations where faith in him is the proper response. Often, always. But he doesn't tempt us to sin. That's the work of the enemy. So when we say don't bring us into temptation, it's not as if God's weighing his options. I'm not going to tempt you to sin today or not. Oh, you said not to, so I won't. I'll back off then. That's not it. Jesus is using a negative statement to emphasize the positive. God, I don't want to be anywhere near temptation. I don't want to be anywhere near the enemy's lies and schemes that would lead me to sin. God, take me away from all of that. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Just last week in Genesis chapter 4, we heard God warn Cain that the evil one was crouching at the door. And here Jesus teaches us that we should pray that God would empower us not to let the evil one in. The evil one does not play around. He wants to fracture your relationship with God and destroy your relationships with others. He wants us to focus so much on our daily bread, our daily bread, our daily bread, that we forget about our souls. If Jesus didn't teach us to pray this way, we wouldn't do it. We like temptation, and we don't take the evil one seriously. We are civilized, modern people And all that spiritual warfare mumbo-jumbo is for other denominations or other people different from us or different countries around the world where they don't know any better. But Jesus knew the seriousness of the matter, and I want to be on Jesus' side in this situation. Here we labor in prayer that we would be protected spiritually from the evil one. When you are battling sin in your life, You should live in verse 13. You wake up, you crawl inside verse 13, you labor there until the work has been finished in prayer, and then you walk out your door and you go about your day. 
the popular writer, preacher John Stott, pointed out that if these three needs are to be met, these three petitions are to be met, then it seems they'll be met by our Trinitarian God. What he meant by that was that God the Father, through his creation and providence, he gives us our daily bread. God the Son, through his death and resurrection, grants us forgiveness. God the Holy Spirit, through his indwelling power, will lead us into truth and rescue us from the evil one. When you pray, pray for God's provision. Here's what Jesus has taught us about prayer today. When we pray, we're going to start with God's person. We're going to focus on his program, and then we're going to turn to his provision. We're going to trust God to meet our every need. Jesus teaches us to pray in such a way that prayer is not a burden. It's not a task. It's not something mindless. It's not an obligation, but it is an infinite joy. That's what it's like to speak with your all-powerful, all-loving, heavenly Father. So it begs the question of every one of us this morning, am I able to call God my Father? How do I do that? I can just claim the title and say, oh, you're my Father, but the Bible's clear about how He becomes our Father and we become His children. And it's by turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation. God created you. He knows everything about you because you are His special creation. But our sin has broken our relationship with God, and the only way that can be fixed is by God himself. So Jesus is God in the flesh, and he died on the cross in your place for your sin. He rose from the dead three days later, and his promise is that if you will turn from your sin and trust in him, that he'll forgive you, save you, make you his child, and then you can call on God, my Father in heaven. You can live your life to make his name holy, for his will to be done to have power in spiritual protection, for God to meet your daily needs. All of those when he's your father. And so this morning, having heard Jesus teach us how to pray, I'd want to be sure that my heart belongs to him. And so to you, Christian, I I wonder what, what in your prayer life needs help or strengthening today. Here Jesus shows us a better way to pray. And I want to encourage you in the week ahead, perhaps you use Matthew 6 like training wheels to guide you in your praying or to reinvigorate your tired praying. I mean, how often do we just pray the same old thing in the same old ways? Use the same words, the same phrases, the same sort of ho-hum approach and attitude to it. How can you pour some fire into that experience with the Lord? Let Matthew 6 be your guide. Will you pray like Jesus? Will you sit with your Father in heaven? Will you turn off your TV and your phone, leave your Bible open, and focus your mind on your Heavenly Father? Will you pray simply for the joy of being with God? Will you labor in prayer as Jesus did? Will you pray? The old story says that there was a Scottish Christian who was known for praying, and he was asked, are you excited to go to heaven one day? And the praying man answered, I live there already. So may you live this week on earth as you will in heaven. Let's pray together. So to you, our Father in heaven, we praise your name. We thank you for hearing our prayer. Thank you that when our prayer is broken, you you fix that prayer on the way up. Thank you that you know all of our needs before we voice them to you. Thank you that we don't have to woo you to love us. You've shown your love for us through the gift of your son at the cross. So God, this week, 
May we be found with you in prayer, resting in you, not just throwing hurried, tired phrases to the sky, but really sitting and laboring in prayer with you. That we might see your provision and we might live for your purposes and that we might adore you, our Heavenly Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray.